1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your heart on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Thank you, Sarah. Um, good morning. My name is Josh. Um, I am one of the leaders here at Christchurch. And please do keep open that passage that Sarah read in 1 Peter. Um, now, I hope that as we look at the Bible this morning, God will speak to us and will change us, so let's pray for him to do that. Dear Father, we thank you for speaking to us in your word. This morning, help us to have ears to hear what you have said. We know you're not silent. Lord, we pray for ourselves that we would be in tune with you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in our hearts and in our minds that we could both understand and um, be changed by your word this morning. And help us, Lord, this today to be filled with the joy of knowing Jesus live for him in his word, in his world. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, I went through a stage when I was in my teenage years of uh, playing rugby, and we used to have, the club I played for, used to have a few training sessions in the week, and one of them was a dedicated fitness training session. And it was really cool, as you expect um, young, testosterone-filled teenagers, men, to be doing. It was very hard-hitting, it was very um, all-in, it was very consuming. Um, do I have a picture? Let's see. It's not coming up. There's a picture of how we would have felt when we were doing it. It was all very um, shouting, encouraging each other, motivating. You pour out your whole self on a Wednesday night. That hour that you spend is grueling. It stretches your body to the limits of what you think you can do. Um, but it was great fun and we loved it. There was loads of camaraderie. And because on the Wednesday it was just fitness, then uh, you didn't have to be part of the rugby club to join. And sometimes you could bring a friend along. And sometimes someone would bring a friend along. And they would join us in this grueling, angry, let it all go kind of lifting of the weights, pushing each other, sweat and everything else. And at the end, you'd say, gosh, that was great, wasn't it? Did you enjoy that? That was, that was great. It, I felt the rush. I felt like my body just filling with adrenaline. Oh, I was, I'm so pumped. I'm, uh, wasn't that great? And they would say, mate, I hated that. <laughs> I absolutely hated that. I would... I felt sick most of the way along. I would rather stay at home and stick forks in my eyes and drink dirty dishwater. That was just the worst possible Wednesday evening I could have thought of. And you might feel a bit like that kind of person when you 
hear Christians say things like what we read in last week's passage, where it says, um, in all this, so talking about your salvation, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Sometimes Christians will be heard saying, we are suffering and there is joy in that. We talk about the pain that we go through as Christians and say, guys, we can find joy there. And you might be thinking, are you serious? I could think of nothing worse than going through the pain of being rejected by those closest to me. This isn't something joyful. Maybe you think of the pain, you think about how your parents distrust your choices because you're trying to make decisions that are good for the gospel. And you know that hurts. Maybe you're, if, if you're brand new here as a student and it's your first weekend in Liverpool and you're thinking about how far on the outside you're going to feel by not getting wasted in all the revelries of Freshers' Week. How much that's going to make you stand out like a sore thumb. Maybe you're thinking about the pain and the awkwardness of the inevitable conversation you have with your teammates when they ask about your views on sexuality and what that will sound like you're saying about their lifestyle. Or maybe you're thinking of the pain of, of what that colleague said last week or last month or last year because you can't get out of your head the things they said when they gave you a dressing down for what they think is forcing your views on others. Or a million and one other things you know yourself. Just take a moment, think of a time when you have felt the awkwardness, the nervousness, the pain of living faithfully to Jesus in a world that doesn't know him. You're thinking, that's pain. So is there joy in that? Seriously? Are we meant to get a kick out of, out of being rejected like that? But the thing is, when Christians say things like that, and when we read things like that in the Bible... You need to know, Peter hasn't finished his letter. He hasn't even finished his train of thought. When we get to verse 9, which is where we finished last week, when we talk about the joy Christians have in suffering because we're Christians. And we'll see today, as we pick up from verse 10, carrying on what Peter's thinking, we're going to see what shapes a Christian's thinking. More than that, we're going to see what shapes a Christian's heart if we are going to be people who can really find joy when we experience the pain of being strangers and foreigners to the people around you. What shapes us is, firstly, we see the big picture. So if you're, you have your Bible and you open it at verse 10, um, I don't know what you made of the passages it was, as it was read concerning this salvation, that the prophets, Peter is writing to hurting Christians. And at this point, Peter thinks, it is appropriate to start talking to these suffering Christians about what was in the minds of the Old Testament prophets when they were prophesying, which sounds like a very uninspiring place to go if you want to offer comfort to people. Actually, Peter's being very pastoral. When following Jesus makes you feel out of place, as you've thought, as it already has done, and as you expect it will do in the future, 
Peter knows that that's going to be hard to keep going, especially when your faith is in something unseen. Now, if you felt out of place because of your fashion sense, then at least you could always go home and look in the mirror and think, gosh, I, I do like this look, though. Other people might not like it, but I, I like it. If you felt out of place because of you love your stamp collection and everyone else thinks that's boring, well, at least you can go home and look at the varied and beautiful stamps that you have. Remind yourself how much you love your stamp collection and remind yourself that it is worth going through all the ridicule people give you because your stamp collection. But what do you do when you feel out of place because you love Jesus? Peter's writing to people, verse 8, just a few lines before, he says, you've never seen Jesus. They've never seen him, he says, but they love him. And it's that love they have for him. That's actually the root of the problem in the world that they have. It's because they love him that they belong to him and don't belong in the world. It's the fact they love Jesus that creates the tension with them and other people. The different priorities between them and other people. The rejection that they face in their life. And when you're under that kind of pressure, it's hard to come back and be encouraged by something you can't see. Can't see Jesus, but I love him. But is, is that worth it? Is, it? is it true? Is it real? Where's the joy in what you can't see? But here's what Peter says in verses 10 to 12. His point is to say, actually, do you know what? You see Jesus more clearly than anyone else in all of history. As you are made an outsider for your faith, your joy isn't going to come in seeing Jesus. As you're made an outsider for your faith, your joy isn't going to come in seeing Jesus, but in knowing him. And Peter wants you to know that you couldn't know, any, know Jesus any better, even if you'd seen him for yourself. It's quite big, isn't it? Did you know that? Did you believe that when you came in today? That's what Peter's saying. You couldn't know Jesus any better, even if you'd been there and met him yourself. Here's why. Um, imagine you go to a doctor and... The doctor says, oh, listen, you've got something wrong with your heart, but we need to find out what that is. And you say to the doctor, well, that's a rotten luck, really, because I can't really see it. I can't really see my heart. And I know for a fact, doctor, you can't see my heart, so how on earth are we going to get to know it well? And the doctor says, leave that to me. And she sends you for a CT scan. She sends you, she connects you to the, to the ECG machine, the thing with all the, the spikes. Uh, she takes your blood pressure. She, she sends you for blood tests and gets the results back. And she sits there and she's got the results of all of these, these tests. She can see the, the diagram on the, in the spikes on the ECG um, readout. She can interpret the results of the blood tests. And she calls you back in and says, I know what the problem is. And you say, how on earth can you possibly know what the problem is? You've never seen my heart. And she says, honestly, with what I know... Now, I know your heart a lot better than if I'd have seen it. That's what Peter's saying. Honestly, with what you know about Jesus, you know him a lot better 
than even if you'd seen him. The ancient prophets, well, they were godly people, spiritual people. Oh, if we could be like them. But you know what? They knew part of the picture of Jesus. They prophesied part of the picture of Jesus, but they were dying to know what that big picture showed. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, heroes of the past, would you swap places with them? Well, for all their incredible faith, they only saw Jesus from behind, as it were. And you know what? Even Peter himself was like that. The ancient prophets, he says, were predicting the sufferings and glories to follow, the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories to follow. Well, Peter stood face to face with Jesus. And Jesus predicted his own sufferings and the glories that were to follow. And Peter didn't have a clue what Jesus was talking about. Peter met him face to face and didn't really know what was going on. You could be Isaiah, you could be Peter. I mean, he says you could even be an angel. But if you want joy in knowing Jesus, well, this side of the cross and the empty tomb is the place to be. Where... The prophecies that saw Jesus like as if he was through frosted glass. Those prophecies converge into the picture of perfect clarity of the man hung on a cross. The man who died for sin. The man who was buried in a tomb and the man who rose again. Like a doctor with all her data knows far better what's in your heart than if you'd have seen it. Peter wants Christians at the sharp end, at the point of discouragement... He wants them to know that not seeing isn't a problem here. In fact, our joy comes from what the Spirit of Christ has told us about him in all those prophecies we have. And in particular, what those prophets long to understand more, verse 11 says they long to understand more about the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And I take it that this is where we will find joy in trials as we learn that the pattern of his suffering and glories to follow is the pattern of our sufferings which mean there is glory to follow so if we see the big picture then we hope in the glory this is where peter's been going all along you believe in jesus you love him and so life becomes hard but our joy comes from in knowing what the prophets have been trying to understand. That the path of Jesus and our path as we follow him is suffering at the hands of a hostile world and resurrection and glory that follows. So Peter says in verse 13, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming the life of the Christian is characterised by their hope that this life is not the pinnacle of our existence. Our horizons aren't what we get to achieve in this life, but what happens when Jesus comes back. Have a think yourself. Do you think maybe for you, the idea of joy in the sufferings you face because you're a Christian, is, is that such a strange idea? Because for you, rejection and suspicion for being a Christian steals away from, from you a hope or a joy that sits within the horizons of this world. 
as you suffer, you can't be joyful because you're missing out on what you hope for. But what do you hope for? What is your hope in? What would change in life to bring you joy, to make everything better? And here's the thing, as long as it's something about your life now or tomorrow, well, of course, rejection is an enemy to that. Rejection is an obstacle to that joy. Your hope, the change that will make everything better, that may never happen. You may never get that joy. The relationship may never be reconciled. That ambition may never come true. You know, life's not going to tidy itself up. You may never get the rest and space you hope for until you're too old to want it. We don't have that many um, really old Christians, really old people in our church. And some of you in your 50s are glad to hear me say that, I'm sure. But I mean, the 80-year-olds, the 90-year-olds, the 100-year-olds that are in some other churches... And when I speak to church leaders or people in those other churches, it's amazing. They say these people who are 105, their horizons are different. They don't sit there with regret that they never achieved what they hoped for in the horizons of this world, this lifetime. They never sit there with regret being 101, thinking, I wish I'd have been able to go surfing in Thailand. Or I wish I'd have been able to go and watch a rodeo live in person or go and bathe in a geezer in Iceland. They never say, I wish I'd have ticked off more things on my bucket list because now I feel, un feel unfulfilled. The godly Christians say, I'm ready for Jesus to take me home. <laughs> I've reached the horizon of this world and it's, a, it's fine. But my hope is set on the glories that will follow. Meet those old Christians. Have your horizons expanded. They've set their hope on the grace to be brought to them when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Their hope hasn't been in this world. And you know, they are the people who are most full of joy and comfort and refreshment and hope. And it's hope that Peter's re readers need as they constantly are made to feel like strangers in the world they live in. And that's the same for you and I, too, feeling like strangers in our culture. But I love the helpful instruction that he begins verse 13 with. Notice we skipped over it. But verse 13 says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace. With minds that are under pressure... And crowded and discouraged and wearied, it is hard to set your hope on future glories that Jesus has won for you. In the hardest rejection, our minds don't automatically go and rest and take joy in our future hope. Unless we've already resolved to set our hope and our heart there when we're thinking straight. Prepare for the suffering to come by resolving now how you're going to handle it. The phrase, if you've got a church Bible, the phrase that says, with minds that are alert. Uh, some people's Bibles will say, um, with minds prepared for action. Uh, more literally, it is girding the loins of your mind. It's a very strange phrase, but it's a getting ready phrase. Get your minds ready. 
He means get ready for what you're going to think. Get ready for how you're going to process the struggle of feeling like a stranger in the world. That's going to be especially relevant to you if you are are on a, at a turning point, if you are new to Liverpool, if now is a time when something's going to change, you're setting yourself a new course for your life, well, get ready now for how you're going to process the struggle with come, that comes with living faithfully for Jesus in that. Because how you process rejection and weariness and abuse for being a Christian comes from where you've set your hope, what you most long for, where you've set your heart. And that's so insightful and so right. Now, while you're thinking straight and encouraged by Jesus, now while you're surrounded by people who encourage you in the hope of what is to come, now while you're singing songs that lift your heart to Jesus, now, now open your heart to the joy when Jesus comes back. Open long in your heart for your faith to be made sight and you finally see Jesus face to face. Because that hope won't come automatically when things get dicey. No, joy is crushed by suffering if your heart isn't already set on the immovable hope of Jesus' return. Now all of this is Peter changing our worldview to make Jesus big. Hope big. Glory big and treasures and opinions of this world small. And if that's happening, then it's going to change how you live in the meantime. And it makes sense that he ends this section with a call to conform to Jesus. Conform to Jesus from verse 14. Have you come across the um, phenomenon of dogs who look like their owners? I'm aware this is such a fascinating slide behind me that no one's going to listen to anything I say. Just drink it in, drink it in, have a look. They're funny, aren't they? Um, you'd think it's not really real, right? Because, you know, dogs genetically not from their owners. Their owners might say they're the mum or the dad of the dog, but they're not. So there's no genetic connection, no reason for the dogs to look like their owners. But it's a thing. It is a thing. Some scientists have done a little study um, where they've taken a photo of a whole load of dogs and photos of a whole load of the owners. Then they've asked people who don't know them to match the dog to the owner. And people can do it with surprising accuracy. Because somehow we find that dogs come to look like their owners. What a dog looks like reflects who they belong to. And if it's not too much of a jump, Peter says <laughs> that that's the calling of Christians living as strangers in the world. We can't look at that for too long, you won't listen there you go. Um, that's the calling of Christians as we live as strangers in the world. You belong to God, so who are you going to conform to? Who are you going to end up looking like? You're filled with Jesus because you know him better than anyone in history. You're filled with hope because you're setting your hope on what is to come. So here's what you do while you're waiting for that hope. You start making your life to look like his. Really helpful. Again, Peter pastorally spots our tendency here. If you find rejection for being a Christian, you're weird. You stand out. People think you're strange. Maybe even further. They shout abuse at you. They call you names. 
Well, you can take the edge off that pain, and you know this, you can take the edge off that pain by blending in. By blending in here and there, by conforming to what people are like around us. It makes life smoother, I can guarantee that. And that's the temptation when we feel that unsaid suspicion. Maybe people are saying something a bit loudly so that you can hear that cast suspicion on what Christians believe, or the loss of respect. There's people who gave up Christianity when they became wise at age 11, think that you've never really got to that maturity. Well, the pressure at that point is to conform, minimise the difference between me and the other person. The things we notice that are different between us and our family, or between us and our colleagues, or between us and our friends, the pressure is to conform and not to stand out. And sometimes not even to necessarily to please them, sometimes not even to get them off your back. It's just because we start to see their lives as benchmarks for ours. Do you see that happening? Do you feel the tendency to do that? And especially, again, if, if you're here as a first-year student, this is your first weekend in Liverpool at church, setting your own course for life, the ten temptation is going to be to see what other people are doing, how they are living, the things that they love, the things that they do, and think that's going to be the benchmark for life. And I don't want to miss out on what they've got. They're going to be the benchmark. Uh, take an example. The person on the bank of desks opposite you is talking about uh, a trip they've had on holiday that they've been saving up for. They go, they come back, and they're, they're raving about it. They tell you about how amazing it was, how fantastic it was. They show you all the photos. They talk about the villa and the private swimming pool and the food and the culture, and they tell you how much of a bargain it was, and you realise that could be yours, but you are saving your pennies for going on a mission trip. Now, of course, you're committed to the mission trip. That's fine. You're going to go. You are going to do that. You're going to serve the Lord because you're going to live faithfully. But you can't shake the fact that you're missing out now. Because you've seen that benchmark. And you think, well, I am missing out a bit, aren't I? And so you think, well, this year I will do the mission trip. Of course I will. Let's leave my options open for next year. I'm not going to commit to something that I'm going to lose out on. But maybe I can just put something aside to go on that. Now, don't get me wrong. Going on holiday is not wrong. Here's what's the problem in that situation. You're seeing the benchmark set by others and wanting to conform. They've got their hope set in a holiday and you think that hope delivers. And you're setting your hope on what they have as their hope. And you're seeing their life as something you're missing out on. There's your tendency to conform because following Jesus, that's become costly. Peter says, as you feel that pinch of alienation, of difference, of standing out from the world, the direction to go is holiness, not compromise. Don't conform, he says, to the evil desires that have no right to shape your life anymore. Conform to Jesus. Be holy as he who called you is holy. Being holy is a, is a funny word if you've grown up in Christian circles it could come with all kinds of connotations. And I find this a slightly strange little command. Be holy because I'm holy. I kind of think, well, God is holy. We read verses from Revelation. God is holy because he's sitting on the throne, surrounded by heavenly beings, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Am I going to be that? How can I be holy like he is holy? 
Do I expect the heavenly beings to sing holy, holy, holy as Josh? That means I'm as holy as God is holy. Is that what it is? Dwelling in inapproachable light? Or does it mean perfection? Often I think holiness means perfection. Be perfect as your father is perfect. But you know, Peter is, that's all true that God is holy, but, but he's not trying to put a burden on us that we can't carry. Holiness means you're set apart. It means that your whole life is living for Jesus. Now you're not going to manage that perfectly, but you can set your life to honour Jesus and him alone. It's not too high a bar. Peter's not grinding us down here. It's about saying, I belong to Jesus, and so that makes me different. Holy. Yes, that difference will bring rejection. People will think I'm weird. Might get further than that. But I belong to him. And everything I do, and everything I do, I'll try and imitate him. That's being holy, because he is holy. My hope is on the grace and glory of the day Jesus is revealed. And that's what I want to conform to. I want to become more like I'll be on that day. I want that to be my horizon. And I love Jesus. I love his patience. I love his humility. I love his compassion for the vulnerable. And I love his passion for justice. I love how he treats sinners. I love how he treats me. I love his wisdom. And I want to be like that. That's what he means. Be holy as he who called you is holy. And that's when you start to look like who you belong to. Not fearing the gulf between you and the world around you, but longing to narrow the gulf between your life and Jesus's, between your character and his. What you know of Jesus is deeper and fuller and brighter than even Peter or the prophets or the angels can imagine. So you set your heart fully on him, his suffering, his resurrection, the glory to come when he returns. And then it's then it won't be such deep pain when you're staring at the differences between that make you feel like a stranger in your own staff room, a stranger in your own lab or changing room or halls. That's when you know the joy in the middle of that. Let me tell you about a friend of mine who takes this seriously. Uh, he is um, a Christian and he longs to follow Jesus, perhaps like many of us. Um, he experiences same-sex attraction and he believes that the Bible says that that's not the relationship he should pursue. And so he doesn't live in such a way that pursues that. So there's a cost to him to following Jesus. And if ever he gets to talk about it, he knows he's really crossing the line with what the world believes and putting himself out there. And that's, that's another cost. Some people will reject him for that. A lot of people hear what he has to say and think he's wrong, but feel like they can't say anything because he's actually the one experiencing it. So there's a, a kind of a strange, unsaid awkwardness and suspicion. But deep down, he's cutting against the grain of the world. There's another cost. And that raises itself in various ways. It had done in his previous job. There's all manner of things about following Jesus, not just in his sexuality, but in, in ethics. 
that meant that even though he wasn't disciplined and kicked out of his job, he was in a position where he felt like his lifestyle of following Jesus wasn't compatible to what his work was asking him to do. And it meant he had to make the hard decision to step down from the job he was doing. Another cost to following Jesus, because he's just a stranger to those around him who do not get why he loves Jesus and why that makes a difference in his life. If you meet him, the man of suffering and rejection, you'll find that he's one of the most warm and joyful and hopeful people. He's a joy to be around. Why? Because, you know, he's learned the hard way that this world isn't his home. This world isn't his horizon. This world isn't where he will be fulfilled. But he's set his hope fully on the world to come. On the Jesus who he knows has treated him so tenderly. The Jesus who fulfills him in the way that nothing in this world can. So for him, living holy, being like Jesus, imitating Jesus in his character and in his sufferings, that makes total sense because that's who he loves even though that's hard. Even though you do not see him, you love him. And that's okay because we've seen today that your faith is rooted in truths that even angels wish they could see. So, live out your lives as strangers with your hope set firmly on the glory to come. Your horizon's not this world, but then. And as you wait, conform to Jesus and not the world. And that, that's the place that you'll find joy.